he entered. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nan, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave to him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray real quick for Chris as he comes up. Jesus, I, I thank you that you are still speaking through your word. God, I thank you that we can gather today um, and, and just have our faith uh, increase as your word is proclaimed. God, I pray for Chris as he comes, Lord, that you would speak through him, um, that we would have ears to hear what you're speaking to us this morning. We ask this in your son's name. Well, it is a joy to be with you, um, and uh, uh, on behalf of the congregation and elders of Foothill Church, I uh, greet you, and uh, we're, we're just grateful that we get to, to be with you guys today. I think uh, Lucas spent uh, last time talking through the end of chapter 6, and I just want to I, I wanna frame this a little bit. I want you to understand there's, there's not, it's not a coincidence that we get these two stories in Luke chapter 7 following uh, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6, right? In other words, what Luke isn't doing is creating this random collection of stories. He hasn't just grabbed, you know, here, here's a story, and here's a story about Jesus, and here's a story. No, he told Theophilus, you remember, in, all the way back in chapter 1, I'm writing, I want to write to you an orderly account of the life of Jesus. And he doesn't have reams of paper on a computer that he can just type, you know, page after page after page, volume after volume. He, he has a limited amount of space, a limited amount of time, and in that, he says, I want to try to create for you an orderly account. In fact, he even edits the Sermon on the Mount, right? If you go to Matthew chapter 6, you're going to see that, that Luke's version and Matthew's version are, are different, not different in that they say different things, it's one is shorter than the other. 
And that's because Luke is saying, I've got, I've got this amount of space to, to get across these things. So he ends, and he ends uh, the, the, the chapter uh, talking about the, the, the man who builds his house in the rock and one who, you know, builds his house in the sand, and that, that's, that's chapter 6. Now, um, sure, at some point you've heard this, but the verses and chapters aren't inspired, right? We understand these are not, these are put there uh, much, much later in the transmission of the text. And a lot of times when we have chapter and verse breaks, one of the things that does is keeps us from seeing how one section relates to another. And so I want to at least put that together for you, right? I want you to see why chapter 7 and these two stories that follow uh, must come on the heels of what Jesus has just said. Look back at chapter 6. Luke has talked about this, I believe, a couple of uh, uh, last week. And if you look at Luke chapter 6, verse 46, uh, here's the story of building your house in the rock, right? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he's like. It's like a man who built his house in the rock, you know, versus the one who built his house on the sand. So the, the whole idea there is the correlation between hearing, listening, and, and doing, actually doing what Jesus says, right? It's not enough to hear, it's not enough even to hear and assent to what Jesus says we should do. What we must do is hear and do. The test is, are you putting into practice what Jesus teaches? Are you actually doing, right? Christ is going to say, look, will you do what I teach you to do? That's the real test, right? Will this actually become a part of your life? Um, And so notice this, if you look at chapter 7, verse 1, it says, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, they've heard, okay? So they've heard. You go on and it says the centurion heard about Jesus. So here's the question. What will we see in response to the hearing? What kind of doing will we see in, 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 to, to Jesus' teaching. What does it mean to do what Christ says? That, that's how we're connecting chapters 6 and 7. That's how one leads into the other. So let's, we'll break this apart. And the first 10 verses are essentially the story of a, of a grieving centurion that amazes Christ. Okay, right? We just read that. And, and, and here we have Christ being amazed. Now, we know from Scripture, we know that Christ, uh, people marveled at Christ all the time. They were amazed by his miracles, amazed by his teaching, amazed at the way he would go about doing what he did. There's only twice in Scripture, um, here and in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus is amazed. And both times, it has to do with faith. The first time in Mark chapter 6, it's, it's the lack of faith at the town of Nazareth, right? I, 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 I'm amazed there's no faith here. And this time, he's amazed at the faith of a centurion. Um, and so, 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 so here's what I want you, here's what I think is happening here. In verses 1 to, through, through, through 10, remember, he's just said, go do what I say. If you've heard me, do what I say. This will prove to me that you're my disciple. And so I think what's happening in verses 1 through 10 is he's saying, here's what doing looks like for someone who is spiritually alive. Let me explain that. 
Why do I say here that this centurion is spiritually alive? It's probably not what we'd expect, right? Certainly not what a Jewish reader would expect reading the book of Luke or, or hearing about this, that a centurion is actually a believer in God. We, might even, we would even say in, in our nomenclature, he's a Christian. Why do I think this, spirit, this, this, this centurion is spiritually alive? Let me give you two reasons. First of all, notice his kindness, okay? Now, his kindness to serve the Jews, his kindness toward his his servant. I mean, the servant that he's, you know, could have been disposable to him, and I can get another one, or to the Jews, right? This is, this is, they don't, he doesn't despise them. It says the, the, the actual Jewish leaders come and say, this is a man who loves our nation, In fact, he loves us so much, he's built a place of worship for us. So in other words, this is not just kindness in word, it's kindness in deed. It's it's love in word and deed. Where did he learn that? Where did he learn that kind of kindness? Did he learn it from Rome? I don't think so. Did he learn it from Greek culture and how they would have told you? No. Some of you know the name J.C. Ryle. Listen to this. J.C. Ryle says, there is but one account of the matter. The centurion was what he was By the grace of God, the Spirit had opened the eyes of his understanding and put a new heart within him. His knowledge of divine things, no doubt, was very dim. His religious views were probably built on a very imperfect acquaintance with the Old Testament Scriptures. But, listen to this, whatever light from above he had, it influenced his life. And one result of it was the kindness which is recorded in this passage. So J.C. Rowell, what he's saying, I I think this this man's kindness shows us that he's uh, a Christian. But I think there's a better reason to believe that that he uh, is spiritually alive. And and that's Christ's reaction to him. Christ is amazed at his faith. His faith, right? He believes something, right? It's real. He looks and goes, man, this is not just faith in Word, it's faith indeed, right? This is real, genuine faith. What is real, genuine faith? So I think, I, think, I think the question that we have to ask here is if we're looking this at this in light of how Jesus ended the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6, we say, what does doing look like for someone who is spiritually alive? Say it another way. What is doing the Word of Christ after we've heard, look like for Christians. If you're a Christian, what does that look like? I think it's very simple. Doing looks like believing. Doing looks like believing that Jesus is who he says he is and he'll do what he says he does. I think that's what's happening here. It's it's believing Jesus is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. This is very childlike faith happening here among the centurion, right? With his centurion, he's looking and saying, man, I really believe. What's the difference between somebody who is outwardly religious and inwardly transformed? The answer is faith, like real faith, genuine faith. It's believing, believing into. See, a lot of people, a lot of people say, I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Um, every presidential candidate in America will say something like that. I'm a Christian, right? 
Are they? Is Donald Trump a Christian? Is Joe Biden a Christian? Is Barack Obama a Christian? Well, look, I don't know. But what Jesus, go back, actually, go back to chapter 6. Look at verse 43. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. That's how we know. So, so, so it's, 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 there's real faith, and real faith produces something, right? It's something where we, we, I may not know where Joe Biden stands, but I can look at the fruit of his life, perhaps. So here's all these crowds. They're following Jesus. They're amazed at Jesus. They can't believe Jesus does what he does. But Jesus, here's what's amazing. He has to squint to try and see a real follower, which is why he says he's stunned. He's amazed at the kind of faith he's seeing. And when he looks for that faith, he doesn't see it in the places you'd expect him to find it. Where does he find it? In a Roman centurion, enemy of Israel. And he says, I have never seen faith like this. Now, now by the way, notice something. Like, this is a story, look at, just look at this. This is a story about a servant being healed, but it's not. It's really a story about the faith of a centurion. That's where Luke wants to shine the spotlight. Yep, Jesus healed a guy. He's going to heal him. But what he really wants you to see is what's going on with faith in this guy. This is what the, the centurion does what Jesus, by, by hearing, simply by believing. Now, let, let's dissect his faith a little bit. What does amazing, what is the kind of faith that makes Jesus marvel? And I love this, right? How, how would you answer that? What, what do you think when you look at your own life? What do you think as you think about, man, if I had to write down the description of somebody that would make Jesus go, wow, like that's faith, what would that look like? Well, I, I think we, we get some answer to that, okay? So, so let, me, let me give you three things about this faith that I think is happening here. Number one, um, amazing faith comes by hearing. Did you see verse three? The centurion heard and he believed. You know this, most, the vast majority of Christians in human history will become Christians not because they saw a miracle, not because they saw Jesus, but because we just heard. If you're a Christian today, it's because you heard. You heard the gospel, right? You, you, you heard and then you believed. Jesus is going to say, like a lot of people say, man, if I could just see, if I could just see, Jesus is blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That's what's happening here. He's amazed that here's a man, all he's ever done is heard. And he looks and says, man, I, I, I believe this. How do we know he really believed? He sent for Christ, right? I, I want you to come because I know you can do this. He put feet to his faith. He's basically saying in his actions, I know you can do this. You are who you say you are. You will do what you say you will do. Romans 10, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So, as J.C. Ryle said, this centurion heard enough to believe. See, this is where all faith starts, right? You hear the gospel. You don't understand it perfectly. This man didn't understand everything he, he knew perfectly, but you you. Know enough to believe. 
and you put your faith in Christ. It's enough to give you faith. It's enough to make you responsible. That's what's happening here. I think he's amazed because he sees that here's a man who just heard and still believed. Second thing I think that makes his faith amazing is that he approaches Christ with humility. Look at, look at verse 4. He says, when he came to Jesus, they pleaded, they, that's the leaders, came, they pleaded earnestly with him, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. Now, now what do they say? He, he merits your help, right? He, he, he should, because he's done these things, this is what qualifies him for grace and mercy for you, from you. But, but notice when, when he sends word back, he says um, in, in verse uh, 6, he says, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy to have you come, right? I, I am a, basically, I don't presume upon you, right? This, this is what's happening here. Faith approaches Christ with humility. The elders say he's worthy. The elders say he merits it. He says, no, that's not, listen, everybody, everybody who comes to Christ, real faith that amazes Jesus is the faith that comes and says, man, I'm, I know I'm not worthy of this, and I'm bold enough to come, bold enough to ask. I think of, and you're going to get to this in chapter 18, where Jesus is going to tell the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and they go both go to the temple, right? And, and the Pharisee stands and sort of looks up to heaven sort of arrogantly, and I'm so glad I'm not like this awful tax collector. You know, he does this, and I do that, and I'm much better than him. And the tax collector says, can't even look up to heaven, and he just beats his breast and says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, which one of these walked away justified? Not the proud one that says, I deserve this. Not the one that says, I'm worthy. The one who looks says, I understand I'm not worthy, and it's all because of your grace. That's amazing faith that Jesus has. It's faith, sorry, that is humble. I'm attached to it. Let's continue. Did I get it on? Yeah, you can help me. I think. I don't know. I don't even know what I'm doing here. I just sold it for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did I get it? All right, but the third thing that makes his faith amazing, I think, is he believes in Christ's authority and power. Look at at verse 7. Look at at the the second part of verse 7. Say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority uh, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, the other, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. See, in other words, he recognized, he, he, he recognizes Jesus' authority. Now look at here, here's the deal. Notice when I say faith believes in Christ's authority and power, right? You can heal, I know you can, but he doesn't presume upon it. It doesn't demand a healing, right? He believes Christ can if he simply says the word. Now, let me just step aside here for a moment. I think there's two ditches we can fall into when it comes to praying for healing. Uh, One ditch is to go, God always heals in response to our prayers. That's obviously not true. Um, God in his sovereignty, there's a lot of times God doesn't heal. We know this. He doesn't always heal everyone. In fact, everybody's going to die of something, even if he heals you, right? So, So God does this. Jesus goes down to the pool of Bethesda. 
right? And it says he, he, he goes down there and there's all these people gathered around the waters and they're waiting for the water to stir so they can rush down to it, be the first one there. And then they thought in this sort of magical power they would be healed. And Jesus goes down there and finds one man and he heals one. So he doesn't always heal. He, 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 and I think it's a ditch to believe that he always will. And if we do that, or always must, if we do that, there's going to be times of grave disappointment. As I said, everybody's going to die. But the other ditch we can fall into is he never heals. Right? Oh, oh that's, God's done doing that. And, and, and gosh, we, we, we read these scriptures. We're, we're, in, we're in two you know, these two parables, these two stories, not parables, but these two stories of Jesus' life where he's actually healing people. And I think we see the heart of God for suffering people. That what we can do is because we see it in the Gospels, because we see it in the ministry of the apostles, we can say this is actually God's heart. We should pray for healing. We should say, God, heal this person and then rest in the sovereignty of God to do what he's going to do, right? But here's this man who goes, okay, um, I, I'm going to trust in the authority and power. He prays, Christ answers, and it only takes a word. Now, why does the centurion believe that Christ can heal with just a word? Well, he understands authority. Right? He's, he's seen it in action. Uh, one commentator, James Edwards, says this, it says, the chain of command, it's talking about the Roman centurion, it says, the chain of command under which he lived resulted in a world of assured outcomes. A soldier, a servant who was ordered to do something did it. A centurion perceives that the presence of Jesus ushers in a similar, though more powerful, reality. A word from Jesus would do to the, to the disordered world of sickness and death what a word from a Roman officer does in a disordered and rebellious society. Jesus need only say the word and the servant will be healed. You see what's happening? He recognizes this. This is amazing faith. That's what doing looks like for someone who's spiritually alive. We believe Christ is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. There are all kinds of promises in Scripture. Jesus makes all kinds of promises. And when we see this, we're like, this is what faith does. Faith goes, man, I can't see it, but I believe it. I believe every promise he's made will come true. Now, let's keep going because then we get to verse 11. And I want you to see the link here, right? Look at verse 11 because there's this just words soon afterward. In other words, what I think Luke wants us to do is link up these two. That's why Andrew has linked them here. These have something to do with one another, right? We're still, crowds are still following. We're still in sort of the aftermath of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and now we're moving from what does, what does doing look like for someone who's spiritually alive to now I want to suggest to you verses 11 through 17 are what does doing look like for the spiritually dead? Okay, now, now, now look, what's happening here, right? We've got a dead son. We've got this grieving mom, we've got crowds, we've got this whole funeral procession. There's, there's, there's deadness in the air. What does doing look like? He can't do, right? The dead boy can't do anything. 
I think this is the point. So let me say it this way. For the spiritually dead, doing what Christ commands is initiated by Christ's command. You hear me? Doing what Christ? It starts with the command of Christ, right? I'm going to... I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to actually raise you up out of this deadness. And I love this because the way that Luke is sort of painting this picture is he just wants to make it so obvious this boy is dead. And notice this. No one asked Jesus to do anything. Obviously not the boy. <laughs> He's dead. He can't. Not the, not the mom. She's weeping her eyes out. She maybe doesn't even know that Jesus is there. She can't walk over to him and say, oh, my, my Lord, please heal my son. Nothing like that. Well, what happens? Luke tells us Christ is moved by his own compassion. He's moved on his own initiative. You know the word in, in Scripture when it talks about compassion, it's... Um, in verse 13, he had compassion on her. It's this idea of, it's actually where we get our, our word spleen. And, and it's the idea of, like you could say it this way, he, he felt this in his gut. He felt deeply, deeply moved. Um, and so what does he do? He walks over, touches the funeral buyer, and says, tell you, arise, right? Tells him to get up. Now, now, by the way, Jesus is a rabbi, he is an Orthodox Jew, and yet he, you weren't, they weren't supposed to touch dead bodies. I, I, think, I think this is one more indication, like, hey, death has no power over me. I, I, don't, have to, I don't have to obey those kinds of rules because, because it has, it, it's, it's not going to hold me, none of that. We're going to find that out as we go into his you know, Passion Week and, and crucifixion. And so what does he do? He simply walks up and commands the boy to do something. Get up. And the boy gets up and he talks. This is a picture I want to suggest to you. This is painting. As we say, a, you know, a, 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 a picture is worth a thousand words. This is a picture of what Andrew just quoted to us from Ephesians chapter 2. In fact, look at it again. Keep this story in mind, what Jesus just did as I read this. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly place in Christ. So in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Could this boy possibly boast? Look what I did. I rose from the grave. No, here's the whole point. He's saying, man, this is an illustration of Ephesians chapter 2. God's great mercy caused him to move toward us. We were dead. We couldn't move. We didn't talk. We couldn't take initiative. And what happens? We, have, we, we, we can't call out. There's no, there's no spiritual life. There's no impulse. We have no voice. We have no agency. We have no ability. There's so many ways we can say this. And so what does God do? 
takes the initiative? What does it look like to do for the spiritually dead? It looks like we come to life through Christ's command, right? It's an act of sheer mercy and grace. He makes us alive. He calls us out of darkness. See, faith, let me go back to the beginning. Faith comes by hearing. What, what is the state of sinners outside of Christ? If you don't know Jesus Christ, what does the Bible say of you? It says you're dead. You're spiritually unresponsive. You don't have eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to believe. What awakens a person from death to life and gives them new life? The Word of Christ. Just as it is in Luke 7, so it is with us. The gospel, the good news. This is why Paul says, man, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. That's why Paul is going to go on in, in Romans 10, as we quoted earlier, say, faith comes by hearing. How will they hear, right? How, how can they know unless they hear? How will they hear unless somebody preaches it to them? Right? How good and lovely are the feet of those who bring good news. Why? Because it is a resurrecting news. It's the kind of news that has power behind it, that when you believe, and here's what I want you to hear, it's all initiated by Christ. God doesn't, Jesus doesn't look down at dead people and say, oh, you awful, filthy, rotten sinners, I can't even get near you. He looks down, moves with compassion and says, I want to raise you to life. I, I, I see you and I'll raise you. See, if you're here today, I, I don't know who you are, right? But if you've not made a decision to follow Christ and maybe this morning you, you hear something that you can grab onto relative to the gospel that God redeems and God raises dead sinners to life, if that is even making an inkling of sense to you right now, here's what I want you to understand. It's not because I'm a great preacher or you're a great listener. That's God. That's, that's, that's God. That's Christ awakening, doing what's happening here. If, if it, it, he's, he's opening your eyes, doing what Christ commands for you is initiated by Christ's command to you. Rise up, get up. I'm going to raise you to new life. But if you're here today and you are a Christian, then maybe it's more challenging for you. Doing, doing means believing Christ is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. So many promises in Scripture. Do you really believe? Listen, I think you've got to check ourselves. Am I a doer? Am I one whose faith I've heard? There was a humility, and I trust in the authority and power of Christ. And I believe that if God made promises, if Christ made promises in Scripture, even though I can't see, still believe. I will believe. And like the man that comes to Jesus and says, Lord, I do believe. Help me with my unbelief. That's all of us, isn't it? I want to believe. Help me, Lord. Let's pray.
Father, I uh, thank you. And I, I um, God, I just pray. I, I, I don't know who's in this room with me, but Lord, if there are those that are here that you have not uh, raised from uh, spiritual death, I, I pray, Lord, there we, they would hear enough of the gospel today to understand and to believe, and that by believing they might have life in your name, Jesus. They'd put their faith, their trust in what Jesus Christ has done for them. Turn from their sin, repent of that, come in humility, and Lord, you'd save them. But I pray for the rest of us, Lord, those of us who name the name of Christ, those of us who believe in Jesus, and, and uh, Lord, that we, we would be people who walk out of here and we would we'd be prepared to 